From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher. Congratulations on downloading this week's show. You've made a stellar choice. We are covering some big stories this week. The Financial Conduct Authority employing influencers to educate influencers. It's more sensible than it sounds. Verto picks up Africa's Silicon Valley Bank customers. Wait till you hear about the guy's weekend while they were trying to figure that one out. And are you ready to give up your smartphone for a dumb phone? I mean, I am. We'll get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages, so please don't go anywhere. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. This episode is brought to you by Global Processing Services. At Global Processing Services, the expert partner in issuer processing, they take your security seriously. Their game-changing fraud advantage tool powered by FeatureSpace assesses fraud risks in milliseconds and uses AI and machine learning to constantly adapt to stay ahead of emerging fraud threats. With their array of available fraud solutions at your fingertips, you can feel secure with GPS as your payment processing partner. Find out more at www.globalprocessing.com forward slash fraud management. Hello and welcome to episode 728 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Venture Lead at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, it's my co-host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. Benjamin, thanks for being here. Pleasure as always. Maybe you can uh, give us a flavor of uh, some of the things you've been working on lately and what's got you excited. Yeah, well, we've got um, we've got a series of projects going on, um, optimizing existing digital journeys where we've got uh, banks and wealth management companies in various different markets in the world uh, trying to improve what they're doing. And we're looking at best practice for them, which is always interesting because sometimes you see things that you wrote about or talked about sort of five, 10 years ago, and now firms are finally doing them. Um, and it's you know great to see um, those things getting into the hands of, of customers. And then we've got a couple of really interesting projects building new propositions for for customers in different markets. And you know I love the, the work that we do, sort of exploring customers' jobs to be done and really trying to find what's the opportunity space in the market. Um, so we've got a couple of super interesting projects going on in a couple of my favorite countries in the world. And I, I won't say what my favorite countries in the world are because I might offend some of our listeners. But, um. <laughs> Nice. That's great. Lots of variety, lots of exciting, uh, lots of exciting things to get stuck into, Benjamin. Um, and some great stories on the news as well. So so good to have you with us to, to sort of deep dive into those. And then making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. So Kate, welcome back. Maybe you can just remind our listeners about you and, uh, and CCG Catalyst. Sure, absolutely. So I'm the Director of Research um, at CCG Catalyst. We're a financial services consulting firm based in the United States, and we really focus on the fusion between banking and fintech. Um, And I manage our pipeline of research content. So that's both on the client side and then externally as well. So very happy to be back. Thank you for having me. Nice. Thanks for joining us and sharing all of those uh, insights as we go through the news. And finally, we actually have a FinTech Insider debut, which is always fun for Anthony Adu, uh, co-founder of Verto. So Anthony, listen, welcome to the show. Great to have you. And uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and also about uh, about Verto. Yeah, thanks, Ross. Yeah, um, my name is Anthony Adu. I'm one of the co-founders at uh, Verto. I'm responsible for anything to do with the technology, the products, and pretty much our go-to-market. So that's from... Uh, launching a new market to revenue generating and just growth in general. Um, Verto is basically uh, a cross-border payment platform for businesses. Uh, we have one mission, and that is to simplify cross-border payments in emerging markets, especially Africa. And the way we try to do that is to 
pretty much built what we call um, infrastructure middle layer that connects banks, businesses, anywhere around the world to basically be able to convert any currencies. We, today we offer about 50 currencies and to be able to send money across the world with the consent money to over 190 countries. And also if you want to hold value as in using treasury solution that we offer in-house to keep the, the value of their, of their money within virtual, we're not a bank, but we have a, a money license from the FC in the UK that allows to do all of this stuff. And then um, today we operate out of a few countries, including uh, places like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, obviously UK, where I'm based, and some other parts of the world. Thanks for having me. Nice. Yeah, pleasure. Look, and I know we've got uh, a story that's all sort of based around uh, some interesting news from you guys as well. So so thanks for, for coming on to unpack that with us. And, and, and obviously the rest of the story is looking forward to it. Um, so with that, let's uh, let's dive in and let's get into the news. So our first story comes from This Is Money. So the UK's financial watchdog has launched a clampdown on, quote, get-rich-quick schemes promoted by social media influencers and has turned to a reality TV star for help. So the Financial Conduct Authority, or the FCA, and the Advertising Standards Authority have teamed up with Sharon Gafka, to warn financial influencers, dubbed, quote, finfluencers, about risks involved in endorsing products. Regulators are concerned that minor celebrities are convincing people to plough money into products that are unsuitable, highly risky, or even fraudulent. Gafka, who starred in Love Island in 2021, said, when you leave a show like Love Island, you are bombarded with opportunities to promote products and work with brands. The watchdog is teaming up with the Advertising Standards Authority on an educational blitz, producing an infographic and inviting influencer agents and the influencer marketing trade body to an open roundtable discussion. Now, let's hear a little clip from Sharon Gafka's TikTok post about the partnership. I've recently announced a partnership with the Financial Conduct Authority and the Advertising Standards Authority. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about why we've partnered up. Now, it is no secret that when you leave a show like Love Island, you are literally bombarded with opportunities to work with some amazing brands. But if like me and you are new to this kind of work, it can be super overwhelming. I feel like there are so many guides on the market that teach content creators on how to build their following. I find that there aren't as many that teach you on how to grow your personal brand, which is vital when it comes down to longevity and success. I'll be honest, in the last two years, I've turned down my fair share of jobs. Reason number one is that I believe in ethical influencing. I always ask myself if it's legal and if it's legitimate. And number two, they don't usually fit my personal brand. I think as a content creator, you have to see yourself as a company and you wouldn't expect a trainer brand to start selling lipsticks. So why should you? This is why I think my partnership with the Financial Conduct Authority is so vital as we've seen a massive increase in influencers promoting financial products and services. Yeah, I mean... um Really quite articulate, I thought, actually, around some of the risks and some of the dangers in this space. And I think, actually, when you look beyond the sort of headline of it being the the FCA and the Advertising Standards Authority partnering with uh, what they called a, a finfluencer, actually, there's some big issues at play here, right? Um, Kate, I'll come to you first, maybe. What, what was your reaction to this one? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge issue. I've personally seen these on TikTok and other platforms, and they usually, you know, a lot of these videos make me cringe. And I worry about people who are seeing them and not having that reaction. I think probably the biggest issue is that it's really hard to tell the difference between a promotion that's paid for, a scam, and a promotion by someone who's, you know, potentially paid but but also qualified. So I think the FCA is taking an interesting approach here by sort of leaning into that trend um, in order to put some guardrails around this and, and make things, you know, a little bit safer. Because at the end of the day, like, I don't think this trend is going anywhere. Um, I think it's more about, you know, how can regulation or um, education catch up to it? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. I think the, the point about education for me i think is a is a really interesting one right and i think um according to the world economic forum you've got gen z they're almost five times more likely to get financial advice from social media platforms than than older people people aged sort of 40 41 and above benjamin what was what was your sort of reaction to this one 
I mean, I agree with a lot of what Kate said, as usual. Um, in a sense, this is starting to get out of control because um, obviously you have you know millions of people spending hours and hours of their time scrolling through Instagram and, and TikTok and such like, uh, which is fine. Um, the problem is that, yes, a lot of unscrupulous companies are getting those influencers to promote financial products. And those influencers are not necessarily any more knowledgeable about financial services than anybody else. So some of those influencers are unknowingly, unwittingly promoting um, the products that are, you know, terrible uh, for customers. Some of them perhaps a little bit savvy are knowingly promoting bad things and, and, and so on. Um, and, but the, the core of the issue is, is, as Kate said, it's about the regulators being able to catch up because the extent of social media, the, you know, the, the number of influence, the amount of posts, that just the ability of any regulator to catch up with that and enforce that is so limited. The social media companies themselves really fairly pathetic because it's not really in their interest. Right? You know, unless they're getting massive, massive fines, they're not going to do anything about it. Um, so I agree with Kate. I think this is a very intelligent approach. Whether it really makes enough difference, um, you know, how much influence does some, someone like Sharon Gafka have? Um, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. It's a good step in the right direction. But there's a lot more work to be done here because... We've seen some of the dangers, you know, some of you know some of the sort of crypto-related scams in the past couple of years. So, great step in the right direction, but there's a long way to go here. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. You know, you've seen you, in the United States, you've seen retail investors sort of losing about seven hundred and seventy million dollars annually, right, from fraud initiated just on social media platforms. So. Not the, the 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 sort of regulators, Benjamin, to your point, not not actually being able to to catch up and not being able to put those protections in place. You know, that's the type of value that we're talking about. Um, Anthony, what 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 was your reaction to this story? Yeah, very very similar to what Kate and um, Benjamin just just said. I think it's not the right solution if you think about what a body like FCA should be doing, but is the right path because. The Gen Z are not going to go on FCA websites and start reading on the regulations and so on, or the I mean, where they consume all their typical daily dose of information is on TikTok or on Snapchat and all those places. So you have to kind of plug into the technologies that's available today. Now, I think from what Benjamin was saying earlier, like you can't just do it with one influencer. I think it needs to be like a an effort that you have to pick a few influencers at the same time where when you kind of want to educate them, you can actually get in touch with a few numbers of um, these Gen Z at the same time, right? But I would say the content needs to go beyond flashy images that we tend to see, especially during the crypto um, booming that happened in the last 12 months or 18 months. You can see everything is like skyrocketing, everything's going to the wire and so on, right? So I think the kind of education that people like FCA or any, any bodies like FCA needs to implement needs to be very similar. Because this Gen Z, they don't want something boring. They don't want someone talking about financial advice and so on. So we need to find a way to use technologies to do the same thing. So I think this is definitely the right path. But the question is, is FCA or bodies like that, are they moving fast enough? And we know even in fintech, they don't. They tend to come in four years, five years, ten years later. By the time the technology is already way ahead. So this, for me, is one of those situations where they need to move a lot faster because if they don't, a lot of people are going to get scammed. A lot of people are going to get affected. And most of these people don't even have funding or money in place, unlike maybe the older people uh, that have money saved already that they can still live. Most of these people, if they get scammed out of their money, that's it. And that's the little money that they have, yeah. And I think one of the big things here is going to be getting the influencers scared about promoting financial products, right? A lot of influencers, you know, they wouldn't necessarily promote tobacco. They certainly wouldn't promote illegal drugs. They wouldn't promote things that they know would be bad for their own brands. So I think, you know, the, the SEC's fine to Kim Kardashian was a really interesting signal because, of course, a lot of other influencers are aware of that. Wow, that's a big fine. Wow. Um, I think making influencers a bit more scared about bad things that might happen to them and holding them accountable for promoting things, um, that might actually also help to make influencers think twice. You know, this is not, I'm not promoting shoes here. I'm not promoting, um, you know, clothing, etc. I'm promoting something that could actually cost customers a fortune. I think influencers need to be a lot more scared about what could happen to them if they get it wrong. So they're more more cautious. So I think I do think they need to educate influencers more. Yeah, I sorry, Kate, go ahead. I was just going to say there's there's probably also a conversation to be had about education 
you know, financial education broadly, you know, there's data that suggests three quarters of American teens, you know, lack, you know, confidence in, in their knowledge of personal finance. So, you know, we could be talking about as well what we can do to kind of help consumers broadly to, to better understand how to manage money and how to spot um, scams and things like that as they're turning to these platforms for advice. Yeah, I think I think there's an education piece here on on both sides, right? I think there's an education on the sort of consumer side, but then there's also education on the the influencer side. Benjamin, I'm interested in the point that you made about accountability and sort of where should that accountability sit? I mean, I know this is a sort of good start this partnership with Sharon Kafka from the FCA, but they have said that there there's sort of other initiatives. Obviously, there's this this sort of infographic. How impactful that'll be, we don't know. But they are thinking about sort of roundtables with um, influencer agents and influencer marketing trade body. How impactful do you think that's going to be in terms of, to your point, giving them the the information that they need to make good decisions around what it is that they're promoting? Not enough, not fast enough. I think they need to do much more to make influencers very cautious about what they promote. You know, influencers are, you know, they're savvy business people, right? Um, they know what they're doing. Um, they, you know, they're trying to build their brands and so on. And they need to be scared, right? They, you know, there are things that all sorts of small companies are scared about. You know that if you don't have insurance, you can get in trouble, right? You know that there are, you know, if you don't file your accounts, you can get in trouble. Um, influencers need to know that if you promote financial products that are in fact scams, you're going to get into big trouble. It's going to cost you a lot of money and it's going to damage your reputation. So I do think as well as the carrot of education, there needs to be a stick of enforcement. Um, if, I can, if I just chip in there, I think for what Benjamin said, I totally agree, but I'll play maybe a contrarian here where if you scare them too much, they will go underground and they will continue there. Like we, we know of various platforms like Telegrams and places like people actually go to to do some of those activities before it became mainstream, right? So I think here yeah, you have to scare them, but I think there has to be elements of you're not trying to scare you out of not trying to make money because for most of these people, that's what it boils down to. How much money can I make quickly? And everyone wants to make money quickly without having to do a lot of work for a long period. So I think if you scare them too much, they're going to run underground and it will continue. And that's when FCA or people like that cannot control it. So I think there has to be a balance between the level of accountability and being scared as well. So I think we need to get that buy-in from influencers that this is important on the education side and so on. But at the same time, they still have to feel that freedom of okay, we are Gen Z or we, we're free to do whatever we want and that's why we're here. So I think for me, that balance needs to be needs to be kept properly. Otherwise, you're going to get complete opposite of what we, what we think you're going to get. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting point. And there's something in here for me about meeting people where they are, right? If this is how Gen Z want to consume their sort of, financial build that build their financial understanding then actually there's huge potential to you know drive things like financial literacy and financial education through influencers if it's done in the right way um all right i am gonna move us on to our next story which comes from TechCrunch. so Verto, um, a London-based B2B cross-border foreign exchange or FX and payments enabler for startups and small businesses, says it has acquired a quarter of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB's customers from Africa and the MENA region. According to the startup's own data, SVB had nearly 250 clients operating in both regions before its collapse, providing startups with venture debt, credit cards and term loans. Verso is onboarding over 60 companies and venture firms, including Jumia, ChipperCash, and TapTapSend. After the bank's collapse, African startups have been forced to review their banking options to cushion them from future eventualities. So, Anthony Luck, obviously really exciting to have uh, you on the show to discuss this. Um, maybe just a little bit of background on the story from yourselves and, and, and sort of, I guess, how quickly after SVB's collapse you, you started to see this trend emerge. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me once again. Yeah, I mean, the, the weekend when everything kind of <laughs> collapsed was um, a bit scary and, and exciting at the same time because obviously as an entrepreneur and with someone like Verto, whilst I was worried about the potential backlash and impact of SV going down, at the same time I'm thinking here's opportunity for someone to, to go in and hopefully take charge and if possible, make sure that that, that funds that some of the startups have in place uh, is not, um, as soon, obviously, we, we kind of knew by Sunday that 
they're gonna get bailed out. So that part it was almost like okay, it's not gonna be really bad. But that fund needs to go somewhere else. So for someone like Virtu, where uh, obviously we've been in this space for almost five years now, we know how the um, the traditional bank works. It's very difficult for any person or small SMEs, talkless of fintech or companies out of Menor Africa to get a local bank account. And unfortunately, this um, fintech or, 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 or companies that are raising money from venture com- uh, capital uh, companies, they needed to have a local bank account in the US now to get funded because that's one of the reasons or the, the kind of prerequisite for, for, for the fund to come to your bank account. So it was not something that is so easy to do anyway. So to now have a situation where SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, was almost like very prominent and it go to a bank for some of those companies to quickly open a bank and get the kind of facilities that you would never get elsewhere. So the massive impact on, on the economy for, for those companies anyway. But for us, it happens on a Sunday morning. I remember I was getting phone calls from other founders. I was getting phone calls from some of our investors and other investors that I know in, in, in the ecosystem. And some of the question was, are you guys impacted? Which is the first question. Luckily for us, we, we were not. Then the second question is, what's next? And for us, at that point, it was almost like, Actually, we do offer this solution. It's just that uh, we not we never try to position our, ourselves as a bank. Uh, we offer multi currency account in the UK already to some of our customers. We offer some of them local USD accounts, and that solution has been in beta for almost six months. And we're thinking that we're going to launch it properly this year. So it's almost like, okay, what can we do in twenty four hours that we know is going to be fully secured account? It will be that we buying from our banking partners, and also make enough wave in the market to hopefully get some of those guys that will be impacted to know where to go to. So I literally had to get the team together with my co-founder on a Sunday after, I think Sunday morning, I was in India at that time, and get everything together, building the new side, getting all the legal stuff in place, talking to our banking partners, so that by Monday morning, there are options for some of these companies that will be impacted. And also, because we are obviously an EMI licensed company, we can't just onboard anyone. We can't just take you in for the sake of it. We still have to run our own processes of compliance and so on. So we have to almost streamline that process to make it faster with less problem for those companies. Because one is you want to put, take your money to it. What you don't want to be worrying about is onboarding and the kind of like a, a obstacles that you usually have to jump over in order to get onboarded. So you have to streamline that to make it more efficient. And that for me was like an eye opener. So we decided to do that on a Sunday afternoon, lunch on Monday, and basically here we are. So um, luckily for us, we've been one of those few companies that have a right solution in place. And arguably, I would say the solution is even better than what the FDIC insurance was. So in a way, it's like a win-win um, for, for companies that are, that are imported in case of SVB. It's, I mean, it's amazing when you sort of lay it out like that, because of course we know that it all happened so quickly in terms of the SVB collapse and there was lots of parties that were sort of scrambling over the weekend to try and, you know, it's interesting what you said about the the sort of, I guess, the problems, the frictions for some of those companies being able to open new accounts in, in Africa and really interesting what you say about how the sort of approach for you guys was very much around, okay, well, how do we, how do we plug that hole? You know, what can we do? What can we accelerate to, to sort of make sure that that option is available? Um, I guess we've heard a lot, um, Anthony, in terms of the um, the fallout in in the sort of US and, and the UK. But I'd, I'd be interested just to understand how sort of active, how prominent SVB was in, in the sort of African startup scene. Yeah, I mean, SVB was was very prominent, definitely not just in African startup, in in startup ecosystem in general. I believe they have about forty something thousand small businesses to venture back businesses by the time they collapse. And that's a lot, because when you think about it, how many venture-backed companies are out there that are raising decent enough fund to have to put into their bank account that requires someone like SVB to manage, right? So that's a lot of, I mean, we know the value in, 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 in billions of dollars, right? So the impact is huge. But again, when we take it back to MENA African startup, like unfortunately, like I said earlier, uh, every almost every venture-backed company somehow will get one of the investors coming from the U.S., and there's still this kind of like a belief that you must have a U.S. bank account because you're getting paid in USD. So even if you're raising pounds or in other currency, they're not going to give you the currency, they give you in U.S. dollar. So 
opening up an account, it's not easy. I remember when we were at a YC in 2019 winter, and then obviously when we were in our seed round, obviously at that point, like we're a UK-based company, we're banking with UK Bank. But when it comes to getting funded, we had to open up a US account, and that's a company based in the UK. So it's almost like, why can't we just get our money funded to one of our high street banks that we had at that point? But if you're not compared to maybe a company from uh, Kenya or South Africa or Nigeria, where their local bank is not as prominent as our bank in the UK, where their local banks don't have the right capabilities, and for the right reason, they don't have the right, I would say, regulatory compliance cover that gives those VC the comfort to want to send their money into their account. So they have no option but to open up an account. Now, if you're not based in the US, if you don't have a local account, I think you have to get um, a lot of um, documentation as well. You have to show that you probably do live or someone lives in the US for address purposes, right? So you can't just use an international address to open up an account. So a lot of these um, YC company, you end up using your lawyer's office or something like that initially. So this is a fiction that, like, this is 2023. Why do we have to still do that? So when you talk about impact, it's, it's massive. And the second part of it is for every startup, like the first part of yours is just getting money, right? The second part is making sure that money lasts longer. If I take my money to High Street Bank today, they don't know what to do with it. They have no understanding of how your metrics or how you're making money and so on. So there's no way for them to give you any products that is useful for you. And this is where Silicon Valley Bank were very, very useful as well. So some of these startups were able to either just on a small fixed deposit account make money on the money that's sitting there when you're not spending it, but also there's other activities that they were offering to to the founders, to the company behind the scene, like even raising the debt. Like there's no reason why you have to sell your equity to grow when you can just maybe sell some equity, raise some debt, and capitalize and grow. So all of these solutions are going to be I think right now the gaps the way somebody else needs to come in and fill because a lot of companies that scale quickly, they were using some of those solutions to scale. And that solutions is not something that a typical high street bank or even the big banks are offering today. I'm sure they will say they will offer it, but the process at which you have to go to give them gases to it is just not what we're used to. So that's where I think for me the gap is going to be. Obviously for Virtu or someone like Virtu, we believe that we're strong enough to offer the banking solution aspect of it. Uh, and I'm sure the other startups are doing that solution and so on. So at some point, you will see new winners coming out of that. Yeah, it certainly looks that way. I think, I, th- I mean, um, Anthony, so much so much useful information and lots to unpack. Benjamin, maybe your thoughts first on, I suppose, the role of VCs. I know it's sort of been um, chewed over a little bit, but interesting, I suppose, the influence that they have on their portcos in specifically who they bank with yeah i think there's a probably a lot of former employees of silicon valley bank who who could feel a little bit hard done by by the venture capital firms because yes you know the venture capital firms you know really helped silicon valley bank grow by recommending it and so on but then the pace with which some of them recommended to their clients that they pull funds out definitely accelerated the run on the bank. And, you know, I think one of the big lessons of this is runs on banks happen even faster, you know, at ridiculous speed. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the VC venture capital companies need to think hard about, hang on, what are we doing here? Um, we just killed the bank in our ecosystem, or not killed it, we've we've helped it die. <laughs> uh, is that a good thing? You know, has that really helped the VC ecosystem? Silicon Valley Bank was a bank that really understood fintech and startups more widely, understood the funding models, understood, you know, the risks involved and so on. Was and broadly was quite conservative, you know, if anything, the you know, problem was they put too much money into US treasuries, right? You know, that was over conservatism, you know, com- combined with some obviously, you know, not realizing the impact of that. So yeah, I think the VCs need to think hard. I think, you know, Silicon Valley Bank's preference or requirement that the companies put all their assets with Silicon Valley Bank was dangerous because that meant a lot of a lot of startup businesses only banked with Silicon Valley Bank. And that actually made the problem much worse. So I think a big lesson for startups is you've got to diversify. And I think other banks should think very carefully about having a mandate that you have to have all of your funds with us. Um, so to me, that's one of the big things. I think venture capital firms should think carefully about A, who they recommend, <laughs> B, how they treat their company, but C, also making sure that 
they're not encouraging their startups to put all of their money in one place, in one pot. Yeah. So a good handful of clear, I guess, learnings and takeaways from uh, this messy situation. Kate, what was, uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I think like just the way, Anthony, you laid out sort of your experience as all of this was unfolding for me encapsulates like one of the most impressive things about the fintech industry, which is the ability to move really fast when there is a problem. And we saw that, you know, in the U.S. with some of our fintech startups as well, um, you know, a number of companies in the space were picking up deposits um, and moving to kind of increase their FDIC insurance limits. So I think really for me, the big takeaway is, is that it's incredible to see fintech kind of moving in to help solve problems and in the way that, that it, it always has done and, and does best. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I guess actually, um, in that sense, no real surprise to see that the fintechs have probably been some of those that have sort of picked up disproportionately maybe customers from the fallout of uh, of some of, those, uh, some of those banks. And I guess, Anthony, to your point earlier on as well, maybe potentially capable of being a smarter partner in terms of helping them grow over, over time and all of that sort of stuff as well. So I think one definitely to keep an eye on. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on and we're just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back with you very shortly. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. The Blinkist app offers distilled content from over 5,000 non-fiction books and podcasts in an audio-first experience, so you can easily fit them into your day, letting you learn new things all on the go. Discover a friend of the show Dan McCrum's Money Men, his journey to exposing the Wirecard scandal, all within 20 minutes. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for you, our FinTech Insider listeners. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash fintech to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account with a friend or partner and get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com forward slash fintech. Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get on to the second half of today's news, just a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight show. Is debt the last taboo in financial services? That's the, the very important question that I'm digging into with guests from Lowell, GoCardless, and the Aspen Institute. So do go check that out wherever you get this podcast and drop us a message on what you think. Um, we really do love hearing it. Now, let's get into our next story. This one comes from Finextra. Visa is teaming up with a host of firms, including PayPal and Western Union, to let people send each other money between different P2P payment apps. The new Visa Plus service means that later this year, Venmo and PayPal users in the US will be able to start moving money between Venmo and PayPal. Visa Plus will not require users to have a Visa card. Instead, by setting up a personalized payment address linked to their Venmo or PayPal account, people using either app will be able to receive and send payment between Venmo and PayPal. Now, Daily Pay, I2C, Taba Pay, and Western Union have also agreed to integrate Visa Plus within their platforms. And Visa said that it plans to start making Visa Plus available for consumers later this year with general availability to follow in, in mid-2024. So, Benjamin, really interested in, in, in your rea reaction to this and maybe... Um, you know, what's the what's the potential here and, and, and is it a really compelling use case for uh, for consumers? <laughs> the first thing is it's sort of funny that um, one of the first use cases here is transferring money between Venmo and PayPal because, of course, they're both part of PayPal. So, hmm, what's going on there? Anyway, bigger picture. Um, you know, in theory, there's kind of a couple of big things that you have to do to make a payment system successful, right? One is you have to design a product that's better than the existing alternatives, right? So that consumers and merchants have a reason to adopt it because it's it's faster, it's more trustworthy, it's more reliable, whatever it is. But the second thing you then have to do is you have to drive adoption, right? You have to find niches where this payment system catches off and you have to drive interoperability. So this is absolutely the right thing to do. And I think What's interesting here is it's a sign of the sort of maturity of Visa and PayPal that although they compete with each other and although, you know, PayPal has historically been seen as a threat to Visa, the two companies have said, actually, we both win by making it easier for customers, by improving the customer experience, by making it easier for customers to move their money where they want to. Uh, we win because interoperability is actually fundamental to 
um, payment systems, right? One of the problems with digital payment systems is people are excluded, right? If you don't have the right app or if it doesn't, you can't send payments. It's really frustrating, right? Why do people use notes and coins? Because they're kind of accepted everywhere, right? Okay, if you cross borders, not so much. But, you know, broadly, people like notes and coins because you know that someone will take it. Um, some digital payment systems are not interoperable, and that's a major problem. So it's great that it's being fixed. It's just ironic that <laughs> it's to enable you to move money between Venmo and PayPal. I mean, the US has historically had a very poorly functioning payment system. One of the reasons, like, Venmo's a big thing in the States. Some other countries, there's no need for a Venmo because interbank payment systems just work. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting insight. Anthony, I can see you're, uh, you're nodding along. Yeah, I've obviously I agreed with everything that Benjamin said. Uh, I'll just have a bit conflicting view as well because, yes, um, do we need Visa to solve this problem? I'll probably say no because, for me, this looks like a another or the beginning of another Swift-like solution where there's one big conglomerate that wants to plug in everyone. And guess what? They do charge for it. It might look like they're doing a favor right now. That's not the case. They are positioning themselves to be the go-to mobile wallet integrator or operability providers, whatever you want to call it, because those guys are not trying to do anything for free. That's number one. So for me, like um, Benjamin said, do we need Venmo and PayPal using this solution? No. They could usually just use a, a simple treasury movement behind the scene to settle each other, and the people can pay each other. So they do not need that solution. So my, my take on this is, Yes, it's a good solution from consumer point of view, absolutely. But is it needed in some countries like you just mentioned, Ross? No, it's not needed because a lot of countries nowadays actually are either in the middle of integrating or you know, of, of innovating instant payments, like bank transfer, for example, in the UK. Faster payments is literally fast. Like you can get money in a millisecond. So why do I need to go into my Venmo to pay you? Like, I can just do bank transfer to your bank account. And if you go to even some of those countries that are in developing part of the world, they actually have a faster payment solution in place. So again, do I need to use another provider to do the same thing? Absolutely no. So for me, I feel like the solution will be useful, especially probably in the US where the banking system for a very large developed country is actually archaic <laughs> compared to everywhere else in the world. So yeah, it's useful. But when you come to like developing market, like let's look at Africa, East Africa, Impresa has been doing the same thing for years. So what's new about that? Nothing new. So I just feel like it's, it's good news for the big boys. Um, the really small guys are going to use it. I don't think they will care too much uh, unless if they're doing something for free. And I know Visa is not going to do it for free at some point. They're going to start charging for it. And the question is, can I just link my own virtual wallet directly to Mpesa or to my Alipay without having to involve Visa? I probably can do that. So it depends on how, how you want to go about it. But I think uh, overall it's a good source of consumers. But I think it depends on which part of the world we're looking at. Yeah, I agree. And I think actually to your point, Anthony, when you look at some of those emerging markets, actually, you know, the, the, they're already doing so, some really interesting things and actually they've sort of leapfrogged maybe some of the more developed markets because they haven't had those sort of same legacy issues. So, Kate, we've had, a, a I would say, a sort of an optimistic view from, from Benjamin. We've had a, a slightly more contrarian view perhaps from Anthony. So I guess you've got the tiebreak on this one. I think so. In the U.S., this is a big problem, right? Because we have so many of these P2P apps and we don't have you know, account to account transfers in the same way they do elsewhere. Um, and one of the big issues is that all of these different apps have their own directory and their own wallet. So you can't send easily from one to another because the directories are set up differently. So I could be at Kate Drew on Venmo and then at Kate Drew on PayPal. And so I think like, in theory, this makes a ton of sense because Visa Plus will abstract away that complexity by creating one credential that you can use across these platforms. And then if you have someone's Visa Plus information, you can send to their preferred app. I think where this could, you know, run into trouble is that in order for this to work, I mean, Visa is essentially creating a network of networks here, right? So in order for this to work, it needs to be able to onboard pretty much everyone or at least the really big ones. And it's unclear 
as of now, what the path is to that. So we may be looking at something that looks a little bit more like selective interoperability, which is not really interoperability. Um, and then as a user, one other thing really stood out to me, which is that you have to choose a preferred app as a receiver. So as a sender, you'll be able to send to, to virtually anyone that is, you know, using an app that's connected to Visa Plus. But as a receiver, you have to set up a preferred app to receive your funds into. And I think, you know, that could potentially cause a little bit of friction. And when it comes to payments, right, the idea is to remove as much friction as possible. So I think this is a step in the right direction. Um, and obviously, it's going to evolve. But it doesn't solve the issue fully yet i don't think well kate i am interested because you kind of said about the the network and networks and i think that's such an astute point but then in that context as well there's some notable exceptions right i think cash app being one that one that sort of stands out so i guess back to your point about this this is probably a good starter for 10 but it it feels like it probably is a way to run before it gets to to that level right right and you know what's going to happen in the time it takes to get to that level. Because essentially when you're creating an abstraction layer, you're kind of creating a, a glue, right? But to Anthony's point, you know, ideally you don't wanna be creating a glue between a bunch of these independent networks. So you want to have a real um, seamless solution, which would look more like account to account payments. Totally agree. Benjamin, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, I just wanted to say, I, I, I completely agreed with everything Anthony said. I, I didn't say I thought Visa Plus would be successful. I said I thought it was logical move. and But I think it tells you a lot that it enables you to move money from Venmo to PayPal, which are both owned by the same company. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And look, one of the things that sort of stood out to me, Benjamin, maybe get your thoughts on this as well is, I don't know that this is going to become a universal solution where people use it for all of their payments. I wonder if it's going to be more something that... It's not. <laughs> yeah okay great well good there we go um i like that um anthony sorry you've been trying to come in please jump in no i was actually going to play a, a potential use case like because obviously venmo to paypal in the u.s makes sense like kate's mentioned but obviously like we know at least from my point of view lots of providers in this space they're actually on the borderline of the remittance business as well and we know that remittance is usually from developed market to developing markets to an extent, right? So if you're a visa and you're only plugging with the big players that everyone knows and the local fishermen in Kenya that's getting paid from their daughter or son from the US are going to get paid. Like, are you looking to integrate to the whatever local solution they're using? Like, it's probably not going to be the case day one, probably day two or day three, right? So it's almost like, I'm still going to be, if I was the local fisherman, I'm still going to be collecting my cash or whatever method I'm using today for the next foreseeable future, right? So in a way, that solution, is it trying to be inclusive where you want to make it easier for people to get paid by making it cheaper, faster, all those stuff that every business businesses are trying to do today? I can't say that from what they've said so far. So it's almost like it's solving a problem in the US, not in across the border, where people are sending money to someone else in another country or especially in developing markets where there are so many options for people to collect funds. And some of them are so simple as just collecting cash from a pay machine or anywhere else. So why would I have to open up a, um, I think Kate, you mentioned that you have to have a one way to receive the fund, right? So if there's only one provider locally that I'm not using today, I have to go and download and get on board and all those stuff before I can actually receive my money. So that's where I think they need to think carefully and how they position themselves. Um, yeah, that, that's basically what I wanted to say. Yeah, that for me is such an important point, right? Especially when you think about interoperability and what they're trying to achieve. I think that sort of inclusive design has to be right at the heart of it, right? Or else it's just not going to achieve its full potential. Um, all right, um, I am now going to move us on uh, to our next story uh, from Rest of World. So after starting cross-border payments with Singapore, India is now setting up more international partnerships for its hugely successful state-backed digital payments platform. So the Unified Payments Interface, or UPI, uh, was introduced in 2016 and has surpassed the use of credit and debit cards in India. Nearly 260 million Indians use UPI, and in January 2023, it recorded around 8 
billion transactions worth nearly $200 billion. Um, last month, Singapore started cross-border payments between its national payment system, PayNow, and the UPI. India's neighbours Bhutan and Nepal have also launched UPI, and from April 2023, it will facilitate remittances in 10 locations, including the United Arab Emirates, Australia, and Hong Kong. Kate, I'll come to you first on this one. I mean, every time I, I look at UPI and some of the numbers and stuff, I mean, my mind just gets blown all over again. It's just been a, a huge success. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible, right? And I think one of the things that stood out for me from this story um, was the, um, the foundation of the digital ID technology that it's built on. Um, which seems to kind of be like a major component of, of its success, I think, because, you know, going back to our conversation around, you know, friction and adoption, um, it seems like that has built, you know, kind of a, a ready-made access to the system for, you know, so many people. And, you know, the article um, said that 1.3 billion Indian citizens at this point are are um, using this service. So I, I think it's just remarkable, but that digital ID technology really stood out to me as kind of a driving force um, behind the success. I'm not sure that something like that would work um, similarly in the US, but for India, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's also, I mean, Benjamin, it's also one of the biggest pain points, right? UPI is huge. I mean, it, what India has achieved over the past five years is, is truly remarkable. Kate, Kate referred to the Aadhaar um, ID system. I mean, so giving a billion people a unique digital identity and then building an interoperable real-time payment system, um, which has a unique handle, um, so it's very easy to use. It, it's grown explosively. Um, you do that in the most populous country in the world, um, which incidentally has millions of other people who have migrated to other countries who have links to those countries, as Anthony mentioned, you know, the remittance market. And suddenly you've got, you know, you've already got, um, what, a, a seventh of the world's population already using this. Um, how soon before it's a sixth, a fifth, a fourth, um, a quarter even. Um, yeah, I, this, I think, is far more likely to succeed than Visa Plus. Anthony raised a very good point about, okay, what does Visa Plus cost? Well, UPI doesn't cost anything. So, um, boom, just watch. Well, and and so that's, but that is an interesting one, right? Because I think there's government subsidies at play there. I think they're sort of mandating that the the banks absorb a lot of the costs. So, of course, it's it's free at the point of use, um, but someone someone's bearing the the cost. I mean, what what do you think, Anthony? Yeah, I think I've, I totally agree with Kate's and Benjamin's point. I think um, maybe the question is that if UPI was a solution that was being driven by a private company, would that have been a success or not? I would probably say no, or at least not that to that level of success. And the reason is not that you cannot execute as a private company and do the same thing because someone could have literally plugged into that ID solution that Kate mentioned and build on top of that as well as a private company. If they have an API that is public or whatever the case is, right? But I think the fact that the, the government, the Reserve Bank of India, everyone's at working in tandem to offer that solution means any new directives, regulations are literally put together to make it work. If a private company is trying to do that and there's no support, halfway through that there will be new regulation that will come out of nowhere, that our privacy policy will come out you can't share people data. There was something that would throw out the, the project into into the bin because there's no consensus. I mean, from from the government. So I think it's 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 sound really sad to think that okay, such an innovation have to have the support of a government to make it work. But I think it's unfortunate because, like, we're in this kind of a scenario where if you don't have the right buy-in from countries that have good proper regulations in place, good financial standard, and so on you as a private company can't just go out there and just do whatever you want. So I think it's a good success. It's a massive huge success for, for UPI and for India in general. But I think it's more likely or it's successful because it's led by the, the government. And I think we saw the same thing in Brazil where it was led by, by, by the Brazilian um, central bank and so on. So as a, as a uh, well, what do you call it, as a, um, a startup or, or a, an entrepreneur, I always see all of this stuff like what can I build on top of it? 
could have someone have leveraged the idea and do something big about it? And it's like, yes, I know I would do, but probably won't be successful because you won't get the buy-in from at least straight away from the government. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, look, there's, a, there's an obvious scale play. Um, Kate, what are your thoughts? Do you sort of agree that, that I suppose, when it's, it's sort of backed and, and sort of designed by government and regulators, it has a sort of inherent advantage over, I suppose, sort of like private sector plays? I'm not sure I would use the word advantage, but I do agree with sort of the the heart of, of what Anthony is saying in the sense that like in order to kind of take this global, it's going to require quite a lot of diplomacy. And, you know, the government has those relationships in a way that the private sector may not. So in, in that sense, um, yeah, maybe maybe I take that back. It, it, it could very well be an advantage. And. Benjamin, one other thing that's sort of niggling at me is, obviously, I guess if this is being designed by, you know, with input from the Indian government and sort of Indian regulators, I guess it's very much designed to solve for specific problems within India, right? And sort of fiscal and monetary policy and all that sort of stuff. How easy is it to to sort of lift and just shift into a different market? Well, I would argue that India is not fundamentally different to... um, lots and lots of other developing uh, economies around the world. India has some very rich people. It has some very poor people. Uh, It's an enormously diverse subcontinent. Um, So while there are some, you know, there are some political issues in India and, you know, India has, uh, the Indian government has tried to get rid of cash and so on. And there are certain, you know, certain things that the Indian government has on its agenda. Fundamentally, the design of this system has been very well done. Uh, It's a very simple system. It's a robust system. I misspoke earlier. There are some charges um, for larger payments. So there are some interchange fees. It's not completely free, but it's free for bank to bank transfers. So I don't, look at UPI and say, this is a model that could only work in India. In fact, we already see other countries copying um, the UPI model and learning from it because it's been hugely successful. Um, you know, Anthony mentioned M-Pesa earlier. You know, th- th- there's elements of M-Pesa that, that got sort of copied into uh, to UPI. It has all of the ingredients that you need to make a payment system really successful. It's simple, it's cheap, etc. Um, and it's got massive interoperability not only among the uh, billion plus Indians, but increasingly worldwide. Yeah, I love that. And I love the enthusiasm from across the panel, I think, on this story and sort of UPI more generally. So definitely one we'll be keeping an eye on. Um, Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click worthy news this week. So maybe Benjamin, you can get us started on this one. So yes, the first one is that the UK's Molo has launched a 24-hour rapid remortgage. Molo Finance has launched Rapid Remortgage to help investors get an offer on their buy-to-let mortgage in just 24 hours. The digital lending platform is looking to shake up the remortgaging process, streamlining the approval timeline for customers. According to the digital lender, using automated property and rental valuations and its automated decision-making system will enhance all its remortgage applications, speeding up the time to offer. Alongside the accelerated approval process, Molo is also offering reduced mortgage rates with both two-year and five-year fixed options. So, yeah, great to see Molo has been doing a lot of things to try and uh, improve the mortgage process. And there's, you know, with digital technology, there's really no reason why it can't be faster than it has been in the past. It's been quite a slow process. Um, So fantastic. Great to see the mortgage process becoming more digital, resulting in better outcomes for customers. Um, Speed is not perhaps as crucial as in some other areas, but there will be some investors this makes a big difference too. So well done, Molo, and good luck to them. Yeah, completely agree. Um, All right. And the next one comes from Fintech Finance uh, with the headline, Bunk applies for US banking license. Uh, So Bunk, which is now reportedly the second largest neobank in the EU, has filed an application for a US banking license with the FDIC in the state of New York. By applying for a bank charter, Bunk is hoping to bring its user-centered approach to location-independent people and businesses in the US. The bank hopes to bring its subscription model to a community of almost 5 million digital nomads, including expats, international entrepreneurs and professionals working remotely who are EU or US citizens with deep ties on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, So founded in 2012, Bunk was the first bank to obtain a European banking license in 35 years. So again, I guess this is another sort of um, 
fintech good news story this week, I think, with so much sort of uncertainty playing out in the industry and a lot of sort of down rounds and sort of consolidation and all of that sort of thing across the piece. I think it's nice to uh, hear a story about someone that's sort of actually looking to expand. I just hope they have more luck with it than the other European digital banks that try to get a US banking license. Yeah. However. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So definitely one to keep an eye on. Um, All right. So with that, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This one comes from CNBC with a headline, Dumb phones are on the rise in the US as Gen Z look to limit screen time. So dumb phones may be falling out of fashion on a global scale, but it's a different story in the US. So companies like HMD Global, uh, who's the maker of Nokia phones, we all remember those, continue to sell millions of mobile devices similar to those used in the early 2000s. This includes what's known as, quote, feature phones, traditional flip or slide phones that have additional features like GPS or a hotspot. In the US, Feature flip phone sales were up in 2022 for HMD Global, with tens of thousands sold each month. Uh, Jose Briones, a dumb phone influencer and moderator of the subreddit r slash dumb phones, told CNBC, I think you can see it with certain Gen Z populations. They're tired of screens. I really, I mean, Kate, I'll come to you first on this one as well, just for your reaction, but I actually really like this story. I think it's it's funny. It reminds me of like when I had a phone like that and like um, I used to play this like snake game, which is like, you know, probably a lot of people are familiar with it, but it was like one of the only things that you could do on the phone. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if I were going to do this, I would probably have two phones. I would have that phone and then I would have my iPhone. Yeah. I mean, I remember the thing I remember about Nokia's is that they were absolutely just indestructible, Benjamin. You could do whatever you want and you'd never break them. You could, though. I did manage to uh, drop a phone into a river once, which um, didn't work out so well. Oh, that'll do it. Um, Anthony, what was your reaction to this one? Yeah, actually, I love the story. I think, um, of course, it's, it's funny, but like Kate mentioned, it actually brings me back to um, my early 2000s. I sound really old, but I'm not that old. But in early 2000s, used to play uh, Snake on the phone. And it's probably one of the most interesting games because you have limited space, like no buttons or anything at all. And you have to try and get the Snake to be as big as possible, right? And it's not a game that you can play for hours or like nowadays they can turn on your PSP and just play for hours. So in a way, you can't limit it to your productivity time as well. So I think it's a good idea to bring it back. Whether it will, it will last, I will probably say no. I see it as another trend like fashion. Um, I remember when I was younger, I used to wear super baggy clothes, super baggy trousers, everything. And then that went out of fashion. And now that's what everyone is wearing again. So I think it's just another fashion thing that in a few, one or two, 12 months or so, it's something else will come out because there's no way this Gen Z can stop their TikTok or the way that they're doing online and just stop it completely. So they're going to have to have two phones like Kate mentioned in order to say that, okay, this is what they're using it for. Otherwise, yeah, it's just a trend for, for a short period. Right. I guess without TikTok, where are they going to get their uh, advice on get-rich-quick investments? Exactly. And, and, and all of that good stuff. I think with Snake, I, I really remember the, um, the the sort of upgrade from like Snake 1, where you couldn't go through the walls, I think, and then Snake 2, where suddenly you could go off the screen and come back the other side and all that sort of stuff. Kate, what about, um, what about ringtones? Were you one for novelty ringtones? So um, I was actually thinking a lot about this when I was reading the article. The one that I remember the most is called Sandstorm, which is very much for, for the audience is going to be like, if you know, you know, but it's, um, it's like a very old kind of like house music tone um, that I had probably all throughout high school. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't remember exactly, but I, I seem to have some memory of like trying to key in the ringtone and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. I don't know. I mean, look, Anthony, to your point before as well about not being old, I feel like I never feel old until I read a specific story about Gen Z. And then they're this they're just this sort of like impenetrable sort of generation that seem to just sort of like 
pushback on sort of every sort of standard thing like oh you guys like smartphones okay we're going to go back to like flip phones and we're going to keep it retro um so i think it's i think it's super interesting um benjamin does this grab you are you, are you sitting here now and you're kind of thinking oh where do i get one of these flip phones where do i get a nokia now I'm a parent of teenagers, right? So I am reminded hourly of just how old I am and just how I don't understand how to use technology and, and so on. I mean, they, they love mocking me for anything, but anything related to technology in particular, particularly because of my job. Um, yeah, it does. You know, I, I remember all these things. I, I Actually, after the dropping my phone in the river incident, I, I used my wife's phone temporarily and she had these kind of minions ringtones on it. And I, <laughs> I remember taking it to work and the phone rang. I was like, oh my God, what that's that noise? Um, so yeah, I love that. I would I would advocate. I mean, I'd be quite happy for a, a, an old school kind of flip phone with a like you said, Kate Sandstorm ringtone. I, I would absolutely <laughs> go for that. So I'm I'm quite yeah. pleased to see this trend. Um, yeah, plus one on the Sandstorm. Uh, yeah, ringtone. absolutely. <laughs> um, all right, cool. I think on that optimistic note, we'll wrap up this week's show. So thank you so much to today's guest. Let's. Go around the virtual room. Let's, uh, let's just tell us where people can find out a little bit uh, more about you. So, Benjamin, we'll start with you. So, you can find me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn um, or at 11fs.com. Excellent. Anthony, how about you? Yes, yeah, like you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Anthony Odu. Uh, and if you want to learn about Veto, it's basically VetoFS.com or with the hashtag Veto uh, in most of the social media. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Anthony. Um, and Kate, how about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Kate Drew, and you can find all of our uh, research and everything that I write and publish at ccginsights.com. Awesome. Thank you, Kate. And as for me, you can find me at rossgallagher07 on Twitter. Um, and listen, thank you for listening. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.